0: Hello everyone. Welcome to the podcast. This is Aidan Lang. Of course, uh, Hansel and Gretel is our opera up at the moment, so I'm going to be sharing some thoughts about this piece, a piece which uh, I think has a lot more below the surface than maybe we think from a cursory glance. I'm often asked, who is this piece for? What what is it about? What is Hansel and Gretel as an opera? It's it's a curious thing, because it does appeal to to both children and adults alike because you can approach it at more than one level. You can approach it from a point of view of its storyline and that's I think fairly clear and probably most of us know the bare bones of the story of Hansel and Gretel. But rather like Shrek or Toy Story, films designed... With the accompanying adults in mind, (laughs) there's something, I think, very strongly for adults to get out of this story as well. It touches on a really strong theme of poverty. Poverty is the driver, and it's very explicit in the text. Poverty and hunger. If a family cannot provide enough money to sustain the two children... It means everyone's going to go hungry and then out of hunger comes desperation and out of desperation we begin to see the norms of family life broken down. That sounds a bit serious-minded for what people think is a rather simple tale, but it's very clear that that is what propels the action. The mother finds herself out of pure frustration with her economic conditions that's why she sends the children out into the forest and as soon as she sent the children out we have a a very touching solo of huge remorse where she admits that she's losing her reason that it is the lack of money which is pulling this family apart so it's got a, a very very serious underbelly if poverty is the first driver which leads to hunger and the desperation. We have one clear thread, but there is another facet to the piece, and that is the idea of imagination. And we see this probably in a contrast between the mother and father, when mother tells the father that she sent them out into the forest, and then the father first turns to almost violence when he's going to hit his wife, and then says, why have you been so stupid? What about this Ilgenstein witch? There's then a, a remarkable solo for him, where the sort of myth of the witch, the the terror uh, and the the nightmares. He conjures up the images of what this woman is going to do to their children. He tells a story, but at the same time, it's the story of urban myth, if you like. But he gives it in a very compelling, almost nightmare-like manner, and that's what's caused the parents to rush off and try and find their children. Cut to The children alone, they feel terrified of a darkening forest and the forest seems to take a life of its own as they see shadows and their imagination is running riot and then uh, a fantasy character, the Sandman, comes in to calm their fears and put them to night and they then sing their evening prayer. And then when they wake up, they encounter the witch's house, which is the fulfillment of their wish, their deepest wish, not only for food but for sweet things. They approach that imaginary world, I think, in a different manner. On the one hand, they're innocent and wide-eyed, but at the same time, they encounter the reality of the witch, not as a nightmare, but as a problem to be solved. I've done this piece many, many times, and I've seen it. Children react differently to their parents in watching the same thing. The children in the audience identify with Hansel and Gretel and see them on an adventure, it may be a scary adventure, but it's an adventure nonetheless. I think they enter into the narrative path of of the two characters with a strong sense of empathy and also an intuitive sense that somehow, however scary the witch is, that somehow they're gonna find a way out of it. Even if they don't know the story, they feel that it'll turn right at the end. But the key thing is there's a tough journey on the way And they come out as better people, they come out of the theatre as better equipped to face the real dangers of life, because they found that if you don't panic, if you actually work your way methodically, you can find a solution to the problem. I think parents in the audience look at it from a parent's point of view, and having seen in the first scene with a father and mother this nightmare conjured up, they enter into the rest of the opera, desperate for the safety of a children, imagining their own children were in a similar predicament. I think the children are scared in a different manner, scared with a sense that they will get out of it. Whereas parents are mindful of their children's safety and in a sense more scared of a witch than the children are. It's a beautiful problem to have really. It captures the the beauty of this piece, that the piece is designed for both children and adults. We have a family day on uh, Sunday the 30th of October with special family prices and what I would really like to see is to see that afternoon really buzzing with families coming to engage with this piece because it is a great piece for children to see. Each group is going to perceive the piece differently. This production has been hugely successful. It's played twice at Glymouth. They toured it around the nation. It's been seen in Madrid, I think in Turin, and I think it was Lyon as well. So it's been seen by many, many different audiences, and it is a mark of its strength how well received it's been in different cultures. Everyone seems to have found something meaningful in it, but also had a really good time. Some of it's very funny. You know, I don't want to sound too serious about it. It's very easy to get stuck in these podcasts about the sort of inner meaning. But actually, purely at a storytelling level, it's very clear. And some of it is very witty indeed. It's a thoroughly good night out. So, the Brothers Grimm didn't write this story. They were actually academics, and they were researching folklore, they were researching it because they felt that an understanding of a nation's folkloric tradition was a very good identifier of the culture of that nation. And of course, we're talking about a Germany 55 years before the unification, a time when Germany was composed of a number of small states or, or sovereign states or Land. And yet there was a movement even back in 1810 for a sense of a, of a single German nation. So the Grimms were trying to identify what its culture was. And so they went around collecting folk tales. Now, the thing about a folk tale is it's part of an oral tradition and it's always changing. What I think is interesting is to trace the real origins of this story. It's considered that it started way back in the 1320s when there was uh, nearly a decade of extreme famine going right across northern Europe we know that when there was no food that parents did abandon their children and leave them to to die because as something had to give and we also know this was a time where people were so desperate they actually turned to cannibalism so the idea of this cannibalistic witch is based Almost certainly on genuine prevailing conditions, which of course in time, as man moved away from that time, becomes a cautionary tale. By, by the time it gets to the early 19th century and the Grimms have captured it and write it, put it down, it's been a long time from its historical antecedents. All traditions, of course, are forever evolving. And actually, what the Grimms did, because a lot of these stories were deemed far too gritty, and there was violence and, and some sexual suggestions as well, with a rising bourgeois audience, they began to doctor the tales. They began to change them and make them more palatable for children. And they revised them a number of times as well. So by the time you get to to the the 1860s, the tale has changed considerably. It's become softened. And then we cut to 1890, where Humperdinck's uh, sister wants a little family entertainment and suggests that her brother write music to four little songs to be inserted in a a nursery-telling Hansel and Gretel, but by that time the whole thing has been softened, yet still, and we see very strong elements of Christianity and and a moral sense is brought to the piece, which is very far removed from the really violent beginning of a tale back in the 14th century, and indeed its gritty telling at the beginning of the 19th century. The story changes as it goes along. With today's theatre, we are not happy now just to regurgitate the same old, same old, rather sanitised version of a tale. We all know Hansel and Gretel, and we probably know it with a 20th century post-Disney, rather saccharine look at the piece. Our audiences are looking for something more thought-provoking. The themes I outlined in the tale are... Food for a lot of thought and interesting and exciting theatrical exploration in a production of this work. You know, this is the first time Seattle Opera has done Hansel and Gretel for 23 years, and I, I was very surprised to find that because I did a little hunt on the big database where all opera performances are recorded now. And you know, dial into these next three months, there are a lot of performances going on around the world. The vast majority of them are in Germany. You can probably go to five different cities in Germany and see five different productions of, of Hansel and Gretel. But it's not done so often in the States. I think its time has come, and I think it's partly because there has been, uh, in the past few years, a number of very remarkable productions which have taken a deep look at the piece itself. I suppose we have to go back a little bit to very groundbreaking book by Bruno Bettelheim, The Uses of Enchantment, where Bettelheim takes these folk tales and shows how important they are as little life lessons for their young readership. That provoked thought that there's more to it than just a straight narrative telling. Now, there's a production in the repertoire of uh, The Met uh, by Richard Jones, which originated in, in the UK and played in Chicago, Richard takes a really interesting creative look at the piece and emphasizes very much the hunger, starvation and cannibalism side to it. The thing is actually quite horrific in every time we get to the witcher scene. It's like watching signs of Lambs in this nightmare kitchen with the witch played by a man. That's one take. It's been a hugely successful production. It's been playing pretty well non-stop around the world since 1998 when it was, when it was new. I've seen other productions which have focused more on the idea of the neglect of children and sometimes pivotal to that is this idea that the witch is played by a woman and identified with a mother as if the witch and mother are two sides of the same coin as perceived by the children because if they're seeing their mother as an ogre, then they then meet an ogre who wants to consume them. That's one thread. The production we have, which comes from Glyndebourne, I think is really interesting because the director, Laurent Pelli is very clear that the conceptual underpinning of the production is only that. It is an underpinning, but it's, the production isn't about the ideas he raises. The production actually is a very compelling, very energetic, sometimes very witty telling of the story. But just below the surface are some very thought-provoking ideas. We all agree that the driver to the tail is the poverty. So he asked himself the question, what in today's society makes the poverty? He puts forward in his production the idea that today's poor are ironically the result of rampant consumerism, or if you like, of capitalism and indeed of the pollution which comes from that endless manufacture of things to feed our lust for objects and food. To understand this underlying conceptual approach, you have to look at the scenes in reverse order, That actually in Act Three, The Witch's House, is a house made up of the sweetened candy and cookie shelves of a supermarket. It's not set in a supermarket, it's actually a house, and the house is also of a factory which produces the cookies. And then working backwards into the forest, we see a forest which has clearly been ruined by pollution. So the idea is that the factory we've seen, the temple of consumerism, the back effect of that is the pollution it causes when we go to act 1 and see the house which is set in the forest as they live it's actually a gigantic and of course not totally unrealistic cardboard box but we know as we look around Seattle that one resort to homeless people is to use the insulating qualities of cardboard to provide some sort of shelter the cardboard box is the end bit we chuck away from having purchased our product you know, the, the supermarkets will, will have all their stuff in cardboard boxes and they, they throw them all out. If you look behind any supermarket, there's always that mountain of cardboard bot to be hopefully repurposed. So there's a sort of backward path from Act 3 where we understand his core idea is that the poverty which we see around us today is actually caused by the market forces and the consumerism which propels our society. So we can't have it both ways. And I think it's a really, really telling point. But I do want to emphasize that I don't think the production is about that. I think the production tells the story first and foremost in a very, very engaging manner. But it's a very thought-provoking production because you you then ponder what what, what was actually being suggested there, rather than in some productions where it's only about the concept and the dangers you feel you've just been receiving a lecture. I don't think this production works in that way at all. This production is a very Seattle production. We know we have one of the first recycling plants here down in Sodo. Here in Seattle, we are very conscious of the effects of of this rampant consumerism. So it struck me that the audience here at Seattle Opera is one which is really going to tune into this very interesting look at contemporary life one aspect of Hansel and Gretel is, of course, that Humperdinck met Wagner in Italy and ended up assisting him on Parsifal at Bayreuth in 1882. And this opera is sometimes called Wagner's 11th opera. What Hansel doesn't have is the dark chromaticism of Goethe-Demmerung. It certainly doesn't have the seriousness of thought of Parsifal. What it does have is an astonishingly rich and varied orchestral score, one which probably owes more to Meistersinger, I think, than Parsifal or or The Ring. But it has a lot of middle parts of the orchestra are are very fast moving and, and give an endlessly shifting harmonic language and color. It's a glorious score. It's absolutely for non-Wagnerians, but of course those of you who love Wagner will recognise the influence of Wagner on the score. And I suppose what makes it different is is Humperdinck's use of folk songs. Some of the vocal writing is very, very melodic. The Witch, I think, is a different kettle of fish. It's, it's actually a very, very hard uh, role to sing because she's not really singing melody as such. But, you know, a lot of what Hansel and Gretel sing are actually basically tunes. Uh, So there's this rather beguiling mix of of a fascinating orchestration against a melodic line which is often quite straightforward and and, and melodic. It's not that long a piece. The first half, which is Acts 1 and 2, are just under an hour and Act 3, from memory, I think it's about 42 minutes. It's about two and a quarter hours with interval. It's not not a long work. I think that's right for its material first thing you have to get right is the casting of Hansel and Gretel. You you sort of need a a Wagnerian soprano, not maybe a Brunhilde, but a a Gutrune or something, who happens to look six, which isn't the easiest thing. One one of the tricks, really, is is the way that the Hansel and Gretel behave. I mean, obviously, you do go for younger singers. You need to have a singer who has a, a plausible playing age at the young end. Children are often very hyperactive. And I think if you, uh, this production rather w- c- well captures that hyperactivity. So the children's behavior gets marked by the way they act. When you come to the two parents, of course, if they have children of sort of, I don't know, six, seven, eight, they're not that old as parents. They're not grandparents. And so it's important also to, that the parents are of the right generation as well. It seems to me that they behave almost more childlike in their seat together than the two children do. Then you come to the question of the witch. There is a long-standing tradition, especially in Europe, of the witch being played by tenor. It's a tradition which Humperdinck sanctioned himself. You probably see it 50-50 if you, if you see this piece done in Europe. Now, obviously, if the production is playing the dichotomy between the mother and the witch, then, of course, you play it with a mezzo-soprano. But I think if done well, a man playing the witch gives a real edge and unnerving quality to the character, which is probably what we need today. If done badly, and I'm thinking more in terms of the European tradition of the pantomime dame, the sort of popular entertainment which you see, well, around Europe, maybe especially in the UK, of a rather ridiculous woman who is played by a man, which emphasises the ridiculousness of it. Now, if the witch is played that way, then actually she becomes a figure of fun and you lose that danger. But I think if played interestingly, and this production by Laurent Pelly does that, and indeed the Richard Jones production did it that way as well, they can be created something very sinister with this character and unnerving and frightening. For me, I think the piece needs to have that edge in Act Three so it it doesn't become just a saccharine entertainment. So that is what we have today. You need a tenor. The best guidelines probably that he sings Mima, especially in the Siegfried. So it needs a voice with some body, but not too much body, but also the flexibility and the ability to play character. There are certain tenors who rather specialize in this role and, and do it very well. Orchestrally, one of the problems is it's a large orchestra for the conductor, just keeping it down or allowing those moments where the inner writing is very thick to allow the balance between the orchestra and the stage is always a challenge for this piece uh, in certain sections, normally when Gretel is singing. It is a piece which offers endless scope to an imaginative director because at the end of the day, this is... A work of imagination. Hansel and Gretel was fundamentally part of an oral tradition. You know, whenever you are used to tell your children, you know, the bedtime story, you would you would extemporise if Mu you took your, if your offspring was awake and wanted more. So even the teller uses his or her imagination. This is a work based on imagination, and I think today we have a duty, if you like, to present a production which fuels the audience's imagination and thoughts. There is, of course, a built-in paradox that if you take an oral tradition and write it down, as the Brothers Grimm did and, of course, now Humbertick has done, you are in danger of killing the audience's imagination because you are telling them what to see rather than it being in their minds. So I think the scope today, as we have a more imaginative approach to directing, with the right director, I think this piece can at least fuel the audience's thought and and fantasy and make every person in the audience receive it in a slightly different way, which is great and and what it should be.